Hey there, and welcome to Cosmologies. Join us as we explore the intersections of science, spirit, and the human experience. Are you curious? Let's go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very last episode in the very first season of Cosmologies. This month, we're going to round out our season by talking about eclipses. But first, I want to thank you for tuning in to this episode or to any number of episodes that you may have listened to so far on your preferred podcast platform, or on YouTube where this project started out. Thank you. Learning how to do all of this has been a really great project, and over the last eight months, seven episodes, and six special guests, we've explored some really cool topics together. We talked about the great conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter that only happens every 20 years, the history of lunar calendars and the significance of Chinese New Year. We discussed the planet Mercury and various messenger gods associated with it, and we did a little dive into herbalism. We also looked at astrological ages and queer theology, and we learned about neuroscience and the tarot. And now it's summertime, which means that it's time for me to take a break. Throughout this season, my world and work has gotten a lot busier, and now restrictions are beginning to lift, and summer always brings a slew of new projects at work. But more importantly, it's time for me to take some time to head into the woods. The Pacific Northwest is a beautiful place all year long, but in the summer, the clouds finally break, the upper alpine melts out, and the long sunny days are perfect for adventuring. So I'm looking forward to a bit of extra time to get off of my computer and take care of my heart. In the fall, I'll also be spending a bit more time outdoors as I'll be embarking on a nature instructor training program while I also continue to teach astronomy. So I don't know yet exactly what the next season of Cosmologies will yield, but I have plenty of dreams for what it could. In the meantime, we have a final episode to dig into. So again, thank you for listening. And let's get on to the topic at hand for the month, eclipses. Most simply, an eclipse occurs when something in space blocks the light of something else in space. And it can really only occur when all three things, the observer, the blocker, and the light, are all lined up. The word eclipse comes from Greek and means abandonment or to leave, but nowadays the word has taken on more of its scientific definition. So if you were to eclipse someone, that would be kind of like upstaging them. You would be standing in front of them. This kind of alignment has an even fancier Greek term, if you like, which is syzygy, and this means yoked or paired together. And these pairings might occur fairly often, or mind-blowingly seldom, depending on the size and orbital speed of said objects. For example, 
Saturn has a thick band of rings, which is almost always eclipsing the sun on the day side, and which is almost always being eclipsed by the planet's shadow on the night side. Whereas a transit of Venus, a small eclipse where Venus passes directly in front of the sun from the vantage point of Earth, happens only every 80 years. But the most common types of eclipse that you'll probably hear about are solar and lunar eclipses. And part of why we're doing an episode about eclipses this month is because we're in what's called an eclipse season, or a time of year when eclipses are possible. When we look up, the sun appears to travel on a path across the sky that moves from east to west throughout the day, and so does the moon. But if we were to map the moon and the sun in our sky, we would find their paths slightly off of each other. Most of the time, their paths would not overlap, as the moon's path is up to 5.14 degrees off of the sun's path. That isn't much. In fact, to measure 5 degrees in the sky, you can just hold up your middle three fingers at arm's length. This is why people at most latitudes see the moon at night around the same place that they see the sun during the day. But if you go through the moon's whole orbit, it can sometimes be this many degrees off in either direction, giving it 10.28 degrees to wander, and crossing the ecliptic plane of the sun about twice a month. And the orbits work out so that about every six months or so, we have a good chance of the moon crossing that ecliptic path at around the same time that the moon appears to be full or new, or around the same time that it's on either side of the Earth. So normally, when we have a full moon, we see a lovely shining sphere reflecting the light of the sun back at the Earth because the moon is slightly above or below the Earth's shadow. And normally, when we have a new moon, we don't see the moon at all because it is reflecting no light and is also directly above or below the sun to our eyes. But twice a year, we can get some exact alignments, hence eclipse seasons. Right now, these eclipse seasons are occurring near the winter and summer solstices. In fact, in 2020, there was a solar eclipse directly on the summer solstice. But this will change over time too, with the two eclipse seasons taking less than a decade to move to the other side of the calendar. So if you're used to having summer and winter eclipses, don't get too cozy. They'll be solidly in spring and fall soon enough. So if eclipses can happen every six months, why are they so special? And why haven't you seen more of them? This is a really interesting question, and a lot of the answer has to do with size and speed. Lunar eclipses are far, far easier to see. This is what happens when the Earth gets directly in between the moon and the sun. And because the moon can take a while to cover the distance directly behind the Earth, and the Earth is so much bigger than the moon, a lunar eclipse can last many hours. The Earth's shadow consists of two main parts, the umbra, or full shadow, and the penumbra, or partial shadow. Often, people on Earth will be able to see the moon going through the penumbra, partial shadow, for several hours before the whole 
moon is in full shadow, and then for several hours after. But depending on the moon's orbit and its relationship to the Earth, which is also on a tilt, not everyone will be able to see the full immersion into the umbra. And if the moon's orbit is just slightly above or below the ecliptic line, the moon may not even dip fully into the umbra, leading to a partial lunar eclipse. So just like not every full moon is a lunar eclipse, not every lunar eclipse is a total eclipse. People from any given place on Earth are usually able to watch a lunar eclipse every two and a half years, weather permitting. But folks in more extreme latitudes might be able to see a few more. When lunar eclipses do happen, they're definitely striking visually. But interestingly enough, the moon turns a sort of reddish color instead of turning all the way black. You would think if the moon were passing through the total shadow of the Earth, that there would be no light getting to it, right? Well, as it turns out, the atmosphere of the Earth actually refracts the sunlight into the Earth's shadow cone. This is called Rayleigh scattering, and is actually the same reason why our sunsets also appear red. So if the Earth didn't have an atmosphere, we would indeed have a totally dark moon and not the brilliant red blood moon, as it's sometimes called. Solar eclipses are even more ephemeral. Like lunar eclipses, they should happen every six months or so, but once again, there are a few different types of eclipses, and speed and size are everything. Solar eclipses happen when the moon is on the same side as the sun of the Earth, and the moon blocks out the sunlight. But the moon is much smaller than the Earth, so the angle between the observer on Earth and the moon and the sun is much more important. The moon is still moving slowly across the path of the sun, but the Earth's rotation is very fast, and that angle is always changing rather rapidly. So solar eclipses may last several hours, but if you're lucky enough to be in the path of a total eclipse, it will likely only occur for a few spellbinding minutes. Often, the moon just barely grazes across the sphere of the sun in the sky, and we have partial solar eclipses. The sun is so bright that with the help of our atmosphere, we don't really notice partial solar eclipses unless we know to look for them. However, with the right tools, they can be observed by anyone within the eclipse path. One way that you can observe a partial eclipse is with a handmade pinhole camera. All you need to do is punch a hole in a sheet of paper and hold it over the ground so the sun shines through it. Rather than seeing a circle of light, you should be able to see a circle with another circular chunk out of it. Or you can purchase special eclipse glasses that are like sunglasses, but much darker, that will allow you to safely look at the sun and see where the moon is covering it. However, it's very important that you don't look directly at the sun or use regular sunglasses because those won't cut it. This is kind of a given. We don't really look at the sun head on in our daily lives, but we have plenty of occasions where the sun gets in our eyes, so we might accidentally look at it. However, our bodies are pretty good at squinting, closing our irises, or looking away so we don't do damage. But during an eclipse, it's especially important to be diligent about not looking at the sun. 
because your eyes might not respond the way that they should, but the part of the sun that is still visible is still more than bright enough to do a lot of damage. If, however, you are lucky enough to be in the path of totality, or a place where the sun will be fully eclipsed for an amount of time, it is possible to take your eclipse goggles away and gaze directly at the moon, covering the sun, and see the corona of the sun shining around the edges of the moon like a filamentous halo. Because of the size and speed of things, the chances of getting caught in this zone of totality are quite slim. In any one given location, you might be able to see a solar eclipse every 100 years or so, but some locations do experience them more often. Eclipse paths cross the globe like spaghetti, appearing curving and random to the non-professional eye, and the orbit of the moon can be so eccentric that people throughout history have had a hell of a time predicting when these eclipses might hit their area with accuracy still being tested in the 1800s. Even when a total eclipse is happening, the zone of totality where people will experience a total eclipse is often only as wide as 50 to 100 miles, with other places outside the ribbon enjoying sunny, partial eclipse views. These total solar eclipses only happen about every 18 months or so, and they often occur in less populated places near the North and South Poles. So when they do occur in more temperate climes, they're a big deal. There is one more type of solar eclipse that we haven't talked about yet, and that is the annular eclipse. And that's annular from the Latin word for ring, not annual the word for yearly. These ring eclipses occur when the moon is directly in front of the sun, but it's further away from the earth than it normally is, and therefore appears smaller. The moon normally goes through a cycle where it's closer and further to the earth, and we usually experience supermoons and micromoons when it appears to be bigger or smaller, and this is an instance of where it is both small and in the way, so the sun appears as a ring around the moon. There's usually still enough sunlight for one to be able to see everything, as in a partial eclipse, but your viewing tools will give you a very cool image, and those observing a partial, annular eclipse might see the sun as a giant cookie with a huge bite out of it, something like a crescent sun. So, What's happening this eclipse season? Well, as I said in the end of our last episode, the full moon that we had in between this episode and last was a total lunar eclipse, mostly visible for folks in Australia and the Pacific Islands, but also available partially in most of Eastern Asia and the Western Americas. Unfortunately, here at Cosmology's Base Camp, we had clouds, and coming up almost as soon as this episode drops is an annular eclipse. The path of annularity, or the place where it would be total and the moon will make the ring, will unfortunately mostly be available in North Canada, North Greenland, and North Siberia, making a little arc above the North Pole. But folks in most of Northern Europe, North Central Asia, and Northeast North America will also be able to see a little bit of shadow. So 
not a showstopper this season, but we can look forward. Later this year, we'll have a partial lunar eclipse followed by a total solar eclipse for Antarctica. 2022 offers two partial solar eclipses and two total lunar eclipses for large swaths of the world, so if you didn't see last month's, you don't have too long to wait. And in 2023, the lunar eclipses aren't great, but there will be a total annular eclipse over a very small part of Oceania and an annular eclipse over a lot of the Americas. Finally, 2024 will offer amazing total solar eclipse viewing for folks in America, giving us two great American eclipses in a single decade. The lucky folks living around the Shawnee National Forest are at the intersection of these two spaghetti lines, so folks in Carbondale, Illinois, Paducah, Kentucky, and Farmington, Missouri will all get two big eclipses in their own backyards in relatively rapid succession. For more information about all of these eclipses and any other eclipse, past or future, that you could want information about, I'm including a link to timeanddate.com, one of my favorite references for all things in the sky. And, of course, because the moon's orbit is weird, and there's a lot more to it than what we've gone into here, Another thing that you can look into if you want to get even nerdier on eclipses is a thing called Saros cycles. Way back in our moon episode, we talked a bit about different types of moon months, where depending on the way you measure a moon cycle, it can last a different amount of time. Saros cycles look at synodic months, anomalistic months, and draconic months, which are all slightly different from each other in length, and it puts them together on a vast cycle that repeats every 6,585.3 days, or approximately 18 years and 11 days. We're not going to go into what each of those kinds of months is here because it's technical, weird, and difficult without pictures, But just rest assured knowing that the moon is predictable, but always way more complicated than you think it is. There's always another layer. Anyway, Saros cycles make it so that every 18 years or so we can predict that approximately the same kind of eclipse will occur. This doesn't take into account the spinning of the Earth, though, or several other factors, so even though the shapes of the paths will look similar, their exact locales will differ. Anyway, I'm putting a link into the NASA website that explains a little bit more if you want to look into that, and a wiki page on different types of lunar months. So, today, eclipses are regarded as rare, beautiful phenomena to be observed with wonder. But this attitude is mostly a modern scientific one. Plenty of people throughout history have witnessed solar and lunar eclipses with terror, whether it was because they didn't know what was happening, or because they did have an idea but were unable to predict it properly. Because Cosmologies has a bit of a mythological bent, I want to share a couple of ways in which people before today have thought about eclipses in a cultural sense up until now. Babylonians, for example, were actually the first to observe the Saros cycle by counting the approximate number of eclipses seen in a certain period of years. This is actually pretty amazing, considering that they were largely confined to one area of the globe and couldn't know what was happening in the polar regions. As we've discussed before, 
astronomy and astrology have been linked for a very long time, with events such as comets and eclipses often being interpreted as omens. Usually bad omens, and such was definitely the case here. Eclipses in Babylonia were said to predict the death of the king, but only sometimes. For example, if Jupiter was also seen in the sky during an eclipse, then he might be safe. Otherwise, a ritual called the Sarpuhi, or substitute king ritual, could be performed to save the king. Of course, the false king would be put to death at the end of the eclipse if nothing else happened, just to fulfill the prophecy. Um, but there are over 30 recorded references to these rituals, and the legend leading to this ritual seems to possibly be based on a dynastic change in the 19th century BC. Nonetheless, this bled over into Mesopotamia and the Greeks, who also believed that the solar eclipse was a sign of angry gods, disaster, and destruction. Many centuries later, King Henry I died shortly after an eclipse in 1133, which may have further stoked this belief in Europe. In China, solar eclipses were thought to have something to do with the health and success of the emperor, so predicting them was key. There's even a legend about two court astrologers who were executed for failing to predict the eclipse of 2134 BC, which, if true, would make it the oldest account of an eclipse in recorded history. But there are other stories in China where the sun is eaten by a giant dragon and must be chased away by banging pots, pans, and drums in the streets, which is actually a very common theme among people everywhere. A Choctaw story from the American Southeast tells of a black squirrel who gnaws on the sun and must be similarly frightened away with loud noises. In Vietnam, it's a giant frog that eats the sun. Norse and Korean stories tell of giant wolves and dogs, and the Inca have a lunar eclipse story about jaguars eating the moon that ends in a similar banging of pots and pans. The Pomo people of America's west coast have a story of a bear that quarrels with the sun and takes a bite out of it, and then resolves the debate by also taking a bite out of the moon, which would nicely explain why eclipses often happen within the same month as each other. And in Egypt, where a lot of sun worshipping happened, there are no official recordings of eclipses, but there is a myth about the snake Apep that attacks the boat of the sun god, and some scholars interpret this now as a solar eclipse story. And then there's a somewhat gruesome Hindu story where it isn't an animal, but the cunning demon god Rahu, who tries to sip on the immortal nectar of the sun, but is beheaded by Vishnu before the nectar can reach his body. The darkening is either Rahu's head flying across the face of the sun, or the sun going down the hatch and back out Rahu's throat. On the other hand, Ojibwe and Cree peoples of Northern American plains have a story where the animals save the sun. A boy seeks revenge on the sun for burning him and catches him in a snare, and though many animals try to release the sun, it's the smallest mouse that chews the ropes and sets the sun free. Other groups have seen eclipses as quarrelsome gods. 
in the Tewa tradition of the American Southwest, the sun becomes angry with the people and decides to leave for its home in the underworld, but then quickly changes his mind. And in far North Inuit stories, the sun goddess walks away after a fight with the moon god, and an eclipse occurs when he manages to catch up with his sister. The Batamalamba people of West Africa have a similar story, which is used as a teaching moment. In their story, the legendary great mothers urge people to set a good example and resolve their conflicts with each other in order to keep the gods from fighting and hurting each other. And according to the Greek historian Herodotus, it was the solar eclipse of 585 BC that stopped the war between the Lydians and the Medes, who took the eclipse as a sign to make a speedy peace. There are also plenty of biblical eclipse thoughts. For one, the book of Genesis says of the sun and the moon, And God said, Let there be luminaries in the expanse of the heavens, and they shall be for signs and for appointed seasons and for days and years. While there are definitely many ways of interpreting this, there are Jewish scholars who would describe an eclipse as a luminary being stricken, and therefore a sign or an omen. However, Jewish scholars have been able to predict eclipses for a very long time, and many don't believe that eclipses are caused by sin, but are rather an indication of a period of time when things are fraught and sin might be more likely to occur. In short, a time of reflection on one's own actions. But there are also plenty of other verses later on in the Bible that describe eclipses as more apocalyptic signs of divine judgment, which is part of why, even though many Jewish holidays take place on full moons and eclipses due to their use of a lunar calendar, Easter is always on the Sunday after a full moon, and never on a full moon. This way there can be no blood moon Easters. And while the term blood moon is often used today, and may have been used by various people in the world before, its prominence in culture today comes from a small sect of Christian prophecy that took hold around the year 2013. The term actually describes a lunar eclipse that is a part of a lunar tetrad, which is defined as four totally eclipsed moons in a row, each separated by six lunar months, with no partial eclipses in between. According to some, this is what's referred to in some of the more apocalyptic Bible passages, but the lunar tetrad of 2014 came and went and will continue to happen on occasion, so some have walked this back as merely predicting a time when things are kind of rough for Jewish people in Israel before eventually getting better. Alas, only one of the four blood moons of the period was even visible in Israel, casting further shadowy doubt. So the next time that you're watching a TV show or reading a book where an eclipse is central to the plot, it might be kind of fun to think about which old stories they're borrowing from. And yes, I'm thinking about Avatar The Last Airbender. <laughs> also, Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court which kind of brings in the newer trope of smart person from the future knows how to accurately predict the future and wows everyone, which is something that kind of actually happened once. In the early 1800s, 
American soldiers and recruits were marching across huge swaths of Shawnee territory, destroying much of what they set out to claim. And after a few unsuccessful counter-raids, two Shawnee brothers stepped up to lead an organized resistance of tribes at Tippecanoe. Their names were Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa. And while the former was known as a war chief, skilled hunter, and master of languages, the other was known as the Prophet. And in 1806, William Henry Harrison, the governor of Indiana at the time, tried to discredit the brothers in the eyes of their own people. Drawing upon his religious upbringing, he challenged Tenskwatawa to cause the sun to stand still, or the moon to alter its course, the rivers to cease to flow, or the dead to rise from their graves. I think you can kind of predict what happened next. Of course, when the moon eclipsed the sun on June 16th, as predicted, this backfired on Harrison, and the brothers' followers grew even more assured in their leaders. Unfortunately, it was Prophetstown, where Tenskwatawa was chief, that Harrison destroyed in the Battle of Tippecanoe. Folks might also recall that this propelled Harrison to the office of president, where he promptly died from pneumonia 31 days into his term, supposedly because he was too proud to wear a coat at his wet and chilly inauguration. Another set of popular eclipse stories are the ones of the scientific advances that have come directly out of observing eclipses. And while most of these are relatively recent from the last 200 years, some of them are much older. For example, the Greek astronomer Hipparchus used a solar eclipse to determine that the moon was about a quarter million miles away from the Earth and was only about 11% off in his calculations. This was 1 to 200 BC, so his quantitative and accurate models of the sun-moon system are especially impressive when you consider that similar breakthroughs wouldn't be made again until Copernicus some 1,600 years later. But once those breakthroughs were made again in the age of print, they started happening more rapidly. In 1605, Johannes Kepler gives a scientific description of a solar eclipse. In 1715, Edmund Halley, who predicted the appearance of Halley's Comet, also predicted the timing and path of a solar eclipse and was only four minutes and 18 miles off. More recently, eclipses were important in the discovery of the element helium, which was found using early spectral photography of the sun's corona in 1868. It wasn't discovered on Earth until 1895, some 30 years later. The American eclipse of 1878 also yielded a couple of scientific queries, as described in David Barron's book, American Eclipse. Full disclosure, Barron was my first choice of guest for today's episode, but he is currently engaged in writing a new book about Mars. At any rate, totally check out American Eclipse. One of the many discussions taking place was whether or not there was an intramercurial planet that simply couldn't be seen most of the time because it was so close to the sun. This planet, assigned the name Vulcan, was never spotted, although we did use it in Star Trek later in a different solar system. Thomas Edison also took the opportunity to test the first tessimeter used to measure energy levels in the sun's corona. 
astronomer Mariah Mitchell also led a team of woman scientists from Vassar College who celebrated their own eclipse outing despite being refused accommodations offered to male scientists. And some early citizen science was done, where Colorado folks in the path of the eclipse were coached on making accurate drawings of the eclipse to study the sun's corona, since photographs weren't very reliable. Then, in 1911, Albert Einstein predicted as part of his general theory of relativity that gravity should be able to bend light, and therefore that the sun should be able to bend the light of the stars in its part of the sky. This is called gravitational deflection. There was a race to measure this, and several parties arrived at the coveted measurement during the solar eclipse of 1919 by measuring the bend of the light in the constellation Taurus. This is also documented in the fictional World War I book, A Bend in the Stars, by Rachel Barenbaum. And to this day, eclipses still offer an opportunity to put our technology to the test. One of the coolest feats of science and technology these days has been the ability to record and live stream an eclipse from multiple places at once, offering a real-time account for average citizens of the speed and excitement of eclipses. They're also great for young scientists to test what they've already been told is true. I want to end on this story because it's a bit personal. I got to watch my first solar eclipse four years ago during the August 21st, 2017 eclipse from Warm Springs, Oregon, by invitation from the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs. And on this occasion, close to 100 students from tribes all over Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Northern California gathered as part of the Our Reservation, Our Eclipse competition. Their goal was to launch high-altitude balloons to the edge of space during the eclipse, loaded with film equipment, science experiments, and important objects from their nations that they wanted to fly to space. Sure enough, when the high-altitude GoPros were recovered, they had floated high enough to capture an amazing sight, the path of the eclipse sweeping across Oregon at 2,000 miles per hour. It was a great day for science. This was a collaboration between the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs and the Washington NASA Space Grant Consortium, and my presence was as an extension of that grant. I got to run planetarium programs all weekend leading up to the eclipse from inside the sweltering Warm Springs K-8 Academy School gym, fitting scores of people in our small dome every hot August half hour. It was thrilling. And in exchange, my colleagues and I were invited to camp on the school lawn, watch the eclipse, help with star parties and visit a powwow, a guided tour of the salmon hatchery, and various other community establishments. I am forever grateful for this amazing experience, and I'll never forget the wild cocktail of emotions that came with it, or my gratitude to the tribal elders. The total solar eclipse really was as profound as everyone says it is. The experience is primal. You know what's happening, and you know why it's happening, but it still feels impossible. 
In the hours leading up to totality, when you look through your eclipse glasses at the sun, you really can see the sun as if it is the moon. Crescented, I mean. And eventually, temperatures really do start to drop. It was hot. It was the middle of fire season. And even on the day of the eclipse, nearby wildfire smoke threatened to cover the sky. The timing was remarkable, as the very next day, smoke was so thick that the sun could hardly have been said to have risen at all. But on that day, it was out and it was hot. Until, suddenly, it was happening. All duties had been dropped and everyone gathered on the field, and it started getting a bit colder and a bit dimmer. Eclipse predictions were so accurate that we could actually count down to the moment that the sun was fully eclipsed. My eclipse glasses, which had formerly held a crescent, went totally dark. And I remember asking, can we take our glasses off now? Because I didn't want to ruin my eyesight by looking at the sun. But then the human noises, including my own, which had been wild, anxious, and excited, turned wild, gleeful, and exuberant, I took off my glasses and I didn't stop yelling throughout the entirety of the eclipse, which was short where we were, just two minutes and change, but the corona was magnificent. Venus was visible, the sky next to the sun was a wild purple, while the rest was a muted dusky blue as if we really had stepped into kind of a partial twilight. And while it had been getting colder out on the high desert, it was suddenly quite cold, windy, chilly. It's said that animals behave differently during the eclipse, but I was around so many loud humans in such a relative desert that I couldn't have told you if they did. I do know that I said a lot of things very fervently and quite loudly. <laughs> Y'all, it was like a full-on religious experience, my gratefulness to be on a planet witnessing such an amazing thing. I remember feeling afraid to look at the amazing corona for too long just in case it also damaged my eyes because it was so bright and also slightly afraid in general, even though I knew what was happening. Awestruck, you might say, just spouting gibberish. And the video I took that day was mostly a shaky look at our own t-shirts because after the eclipse kicked into full gear, I didn't look at my phone camera, only at the sun, the sky, and the stars. I believe that when the moon finished its transit, there was wild applause, but I don't have a solid memory of what happened immediately after. I think I tried to keep watching the moon's shadow leave the sun, but there were cleanup tasks to be done. But it was amazing. And it changed me. I believe that night after dinner, my colleagues and I commented that we would try to spend the next eclipse in 2024 together. And no matter in which direction we have all grown between these two eclipses, I will always remember and honor that sentiment. For me, an eclipse is a moment that changes everything. And because of the folks at Warm Springs, it's also a time to come together. We're nearing the end, and I've saved my favorite eclipse fact for last because it's just so wonderful. The moon and the sun are both very 
different sizes, and they're both very different distances away from the Earth. But we're extremely lucky that we live on a planet where these two objects are able to align just perfectly so that eclipses are possible. The moon is the exact perfect size and distance to perfectly cover the sun. It doesn't happen all the time, and thus isn't annoying, but it happens often enough to give people the opportunity to wonder, to marvel about orbital mechanics, to really see in real time, I live here. That's our moon. And our sun is really there. An eclipse somehow has more weight to it than seeing either of these objects by themselves. But Mercury and Venus have no moons. Mars's moons are too small to have this effect, and you can't stand on any of the rest of the planets, even if they did have small moons that could block out the sun from certain vantage points. So here on Earth is the only place where we can experience these eclipses. As far as I can tell, outside of the existence of life itself, there is no greater cosmic coincidence. The next century will have a great many eclipses in rather accessible locations, so while this was my first eclipse experience, I feel pretty confident in saying that I will see more. And if you haven't seen one yet, I encourage you to try to do so, because it will change you in ways you might not know until much later, but it will. Thank you everyone for listening to my account of an eclipse and for listening to my show through this first season. If you heard me mention an episode that you haven't heard yet and think would be super interesting, check it out. And if you liked any of these episodes, be sure to share them with a friend or someone you know might appreciate them. It would be so great to hear some of your feedback and gain some momentum before starting on another season. You know the dance. Like, comment, subscribe, etc. And if you have any questions about the cosmos, suggestions for guests, corrections or disagreements, sponsor interest, fan mail, or special requests for other intersections of science, spirituality, and storytelling, and the human experience, drop me a line at cosmologieschannel at gmail.com. Or, for more personal queries, use the contact page at nataliecopeland.net. All right, y'all. That wraps up this season. Cosmologies is written and produced by yours truly, Natalie Copeland, and our theme music is written and performed by Aaron J. Shea. And as always, dear listener, get outside, look at cool stuff, read some books, stay full of wonder, and stay wonderful. Mysteries within us too